Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again this morning and have the opportunity to turn in the word together and remember the means by which we are held, that these are not just uh, words of kindness and generosity. These aren't just words of comfort and encouragement. These are words of truth, reflecting of the reality of the work of Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what he has declared over the people who are saved by his grace through faith. So this morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter nine, uh, chapter eight, Acts chapter eight, verses nine through twenty-five. If you brought a Bible, love for you to turn there. Otherwise, we do have some paperback Bibles that are near you. Would love it if you grab one of those and follow along with us this morning. Acts chapter eight, verses nine through twenty-five. Please follow along with me as we continue our sermon series entitled "Witnesses: A Study in the Book." of Acts where we see the ways that the church is commissioned, sent, and goes about being witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, this morning that we have it recorded for us, this authoritative account of your work in the midst of your church, the spreading of the good news, the work of your spirit among the witnesses, that it was effective for the purposes that you sent your word. Lord, I pray that that would be so among us this morning. Lord, we ask that your word would be effective in our midst, that we would be convicted of sin, that we would hear the damning reality 
of our pride if left on our own apart from grace and faith. Lord, that we would hear the call to repent and to believe, and we would do so by your Spirit's work within us. Lord, we thank you, and we trust you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in, as we've been walking our way through these chapters of Acts, we come to Acts chapter 8, and what we saw last week is the gospel go to Samaria. We spent a, a good bit of time on this last week, so I'll be brief, but this passage continues the fruitful evidence of the gospel's power to extend out from Jerusalem, right, where the, the gospel was was received first as the witness of Jesus Christ to his apostles and then to the 120 that gathered in the upper room and then that the Spirit sent them out in his power to be witnesses just as Jesus had promised. We see that power now being extended out from Jerusalem and going into the world. After the death of Stephen in the previous chapter in Acts chapter 7, the church's first martyr after his death, a great persecution broke out in the, around the church, and the church was scattered throughout the region, it says, through Judea and Samaria. And here we are in Samaria now in our passage again this morning. As the people were scattered, the disciples of Jesus, they spoke the good news that they had heard from Jesus and from the apostles, and the word spread, and many heard and many believed. This is the context in which we find our passage beginning in verse 9. This story of the church is the story of the church from the beginning, often in the midst of hardship, in the midst of loss, but also with great boldness and great joy, the church goes into all the world to preach the gospel. And where the church goes, the Holy Spirit prepares hearts to receive that gospel and the word increases and there's joy in the church and in the city that's where our passage ended last week acts chapter 8 verse 8 so there was much joy in that city as the gospel was being received by the people there now that city that's being spoken of in verse 8 is the city of samaria and the people of the city were hearing the gospel and they were seeing evidences of the power of the gospel, first demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus himself. Now that ministry that Jesus had begun and commissioned his apostles to are, are spreading in power among the cities of the nations. And these works are bearing external witnesses witness to the reality of the gospel, which is the power of God in an inner reality to forgive sin. So as these outward demonstrations are taking place, they're witness to an inner reality that cannot be seen apart from the transformed heart, the transformed person who has been redeemed by grace through faith. And now what we have beginning in verse nine is we see just as salvation came to Jerusalem, we see this salvation coming to a city. Salvation coming to a city again. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the power of God, right? In tongues, as of fire, it says. 
and in a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. That was Acts chapter 2, this powerful demonstration. But we also saw the Holy Spirit working so visibly among the people as the word was proclaimed and, and as they bore witness to the power of God, not only in these outward demonstrations, but for salvation. This was the work of God in the city of Jerusalem to bear witness to the fact that while Christ, who had demonstrated power over all things, and this was a ministry of Jesus, he was demonstrating his power over sin, death, and the devil and all of his great works. And then he has this great accomplishment on the cross to once and for all put away sin for all who would place their faith in his name. And he has demonstrated that he had the power and the authority to do that through the works of of his ministry. And so what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that even though Jesus the Christ had risen and he had ascended, the power of God is still very much at work among the people of God. And he's very much at work through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. The the great works of the Spirit in these early chapters of Acts bear witness to the powerful establishment that Jesus is still king. He's still reigning. He is still king over his kingdom. He's still very much establishing a kingdom among the people's hearts that he is calling to himself by means of the gospel. Now, what we have in this morning's passage, again, is the news of the gospel spreading to another major city. The word had been preached, the power of God had been manifest in many ways, and many in the city had come to believe, and those who had come to believe were baptized. And now what we see in the second part of our passage this morning is a delegation of the apostles, Peter and John. They've come to bear witness to the great sign that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's a a point of clarity that I have to offer here. Apart from the inner work of the Holy Spirit to convict a heart of sin, to grant the gift of faith, there can be no salvation. You hear that? It is a clear testimony of the Scriptures. Apart from the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to give the gift of faith, there can be no salvation. And yet these people had been changed. They had believed and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. The fact that the people of this city had believed the gospel at all is evidence that the Holy Spirit was very much at work and present in the city of Samaria, even before the apostles came. These people were already saved by grace alone through faith alone. But God, in this season of the establishment of the church, is bearing witness to these inner realities that are taking place through powerful external evidences. So God is seeing to it that the word of the Holy Spirit's authority to forgive sins is spreading from city to city through these great wonders. And he's seeing that this news is not only taking place, but it's also being recorded for us that there are those who are paying attention and offering an account that while these powerful moments of the apostles would pass away, there would still be a record for us today that we too would believe that this good news of this inner working of the Spirit of God is real. There is a power in the Spirit of God to save. So our confidence in the reality of the Holy Spirit's indwelling comfort and power 
is established through the testimony of these many witnesses to the power of God in the establishment of the church. So we can be assured of this. The Holy Spirit, promised and sent by Jesus Himself, is very much present in every single believer. We can be assured through the witness of the Scriptures that the Spirit is still the means of the church bearing witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. This is the Holy Spirit's work among the church. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Do you hear what the Spirit's power is for? That you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as we ourselves go to the end of the earth with the word of the gospel, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit has gone with us and even before us and is at work in the midst of the preaching of the word. Even as we have been encouraged in recent weeks to go into our households and go into our communities and we prayed for one another in community groups regarding these things, we can be assured that the Spirit of God is with us in our proclamation. So, in the midst of this powerful display of the gospel in the city of Samaria, we're interrupted. We're interrupted by verse 9 with these words. Look at it with me. But there was a man named Simon. There was a man named Simon. Who is this Simon that can interrupt the flow of this great testimony of the work of God in this city of Samaria? Well, we're told in the passage that he practiced magic. We know that. We know that people said that he was something great. We know that. We know that he, he was gathering attention to himself. We know that he reveled in the spotlight of greatness that belongs to God alone. We know that, and it's a problem. The reason the people paid any attention to him at all was that they were amazed with his magic, the passage tells us. Now, there's something interesting. If you look at it, if you look at the words that are there, you'll see that between verses 9 and 13, there are four times that the word great is used. It's an important word to the passage. Greatness and amazement are key words in the section of Scripture. I want you to notice, it says that he was saying that he himself was somebody great. That takes a little bit of guts, right? He was saying that he himself was something great. It says that from the least to the greatest, they were amazed by Simon the magician. The power of God that is called great. This is what they were calling Simon. And he reveled in it. He gathered in that statement for himself. The power of God that is called great. Simon's pride had taken the place of God for himself. And then verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Great miracles, and he is amazed. Simon saw himself and presented himself as something great. But it wasn't until true greatness arrived on the scene that Simon's position in the world began to be shaken. 
right there. And he himself came to believe that there was a power at work here that was not his magic tricks. I think it's important to notice that Simon himself was actually amazed. He knows that what he was doing was a sham. But this was true greatness. This was genuine miracle, and he saw it. I wonder if one of the reasons why this passage is in here for us is to demonstrate, sort of like in Egypt with Pharaoh and his, his magicians. Now, they were nothing when the power of God enters the court of Pharaoh. And the power of God systematically dismantles the gods of Egypt. So that even Pharaoh has to acknowledge the reality of the powerful right hand of God that was saving the people. And he sends them out. Well, here's Simon, a great man in Samaria. And he himself is amazed. We'll soon see that what was actually amazing Simon was this question. How could I harness the power for myself that I could make myself great? It's important to to take a moment to, to pause and consider what is it that compels Simon up to this point? What is Simon's motivation? What is the condition of his heart? Peter's going to comment on the condition of his heart later. What is its condition? Well, Simon pursued magic. Probably something like a mixture of sleight of hand with occultic practices of deception. And he practiced and pursued that magic for the explicit purpose of making his name great. What is Simon's motivation? Isn't it something along the lines of a very twisted form of approval? Acceptance? Now, when we hear of a person's profession of faith, we need to listen not only to their profession of faith, as Simon makes one right here. He believes and and is baptized and even follows after Philip. When we listen to that profession, we must also watch for the evidences of the heart's motivation. This is so important to this passage. What we call that is we call that evidences of grace. We're not listening only for the ability to recount the gospel that was professed to us. We're watching for the evidence that there is a transformation that that gospel has had on the heart of an individual. And the most basic evidence of grace is not a purely legalistic observance of various rules and arbitrary regulations. This is one of the greatest mistakes that we make when we're looking for evidences of faith. We're looking for some sin that the person used to do that now they've cleaned themselves up a little bit. But that's so easy. It's just a little bit of cleaning up. It's grabbing a couple arbitrary rules that either the person has grabbed a hold of or the community that they're around have made some legalism about. Friends, that is not the greatest of the evidences of grace. The most basic evidence of grace is whether or not a person has been humbled to believe that the Lord alone is great. That the Lord alone is worthy of devotion. Now, if that's true, that the Lord alone is great, and the Lord alone is worthy of devotion to be treasured, there will be evidences in the way that we live. And the casting down of things that used to, to have a place in our life that was inordinate. 
the, the laying aside of, of sin that we now see to be lesser than it was. But the way that we speak about it isn't with self-righteousness, but with humility that we ever devalued the Lord before. We'll be able to judge Simon's faith. And we'll be able to do so by observing its fruits soon enough. And it is right to expect and discern evidences of grace and to consider Simon and perhaps our own hearts very carefully this morning. So let's ask the question, what does Simon believe? What does Simon believe? Well, let's consider his words. Look at verse 19. Just after Simon asks and offers them money for this power, he says this, Give me this power also, in verse 19, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I guess the the apostles must have been super busy. They needed sort of a third helper that day. Clearly, this was just a humble man trying to offer a little bit of help to busy ministers, right? What does Simon want? Does he want to see the Lord glorified because the Lord is worthy of honor and glory? Does he want to make known the greatness of the Lord in salvation? Does Simon want simply like the psalmist to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? That would be enough. No. Simon wanted power. Simon wanted greatness explicitly by his own confession. What a tragedy. Consider Simon. He was a hand's breadth of faith away from greatness. There's no greater reality than for one to be humbled by the grace of God and enter into the kingdom of God like a child. How much better it is to to enter the kingdom of heaven and be called an heir. But this requires also the faith of a child, not the haughty grasping of a charlatan. He was a hand's breadth of faith away from entrance as an heir, but he wanted to serve his way into the kingdom. There's no greater evil that I can think of than to use the gifts of God that God has leveraged, that God has created, that God has performed to gather a people to himself that we would leverage those gifts instead to make a name for ourselves and turn a people into our people. Let's be clear. What Simon wants to do is he wants to prostitute the Holy Spirit. He wants to prostitute God's people, the church, for his own personal gain. He thinks that the gifts of God are for hire. He offered him money. Peter goes out of his way to describe this. I believe that at the heart of so much bad theology today is a misunderstanding of the value of God. Consider what Simon's really doing. What Simon seems to believe about the value of God in his offer of some sum. If God's power can be bought, then there must be some value that we could assign to it. It must be worth some percentage of one's personal net worth that he could take only a portion of what he has and offer it up as a money, as, and as an equivalent value for the power of God himself. What little value God's power must be worth that it might be purchased 
Is this Jesus' testimony about the power of God? Is this Jesus' testimony about the kingdom? That a man would find a treasure in a field and sell everything that he has just to have that one reality near? Infinite treasure of the kingdom of God and all of his power for salvation. It's as though the power of God is, is of less value than all that I could possess so that I could offer up my gift to purchase it. You say, I'm glad I've never done that. (laughs) Yeah, that's Simon. He's a bad guy. Can we all just vote him out? You know, but all the self-righteous raise your hand and let's, let's say, yeah, that's horrible stuff. I'm glad I've never offered to purchase the power of God like this Simon guy. There's no greater value, no greater power in the universe than the grace of God in salvation. Even the angels long to look into the grace of salvation. It took the incarnation of God the Son. It took the sinless obedience of the Christ. It took brutal sacrificial death on a cross. It took a resurrection and all this to secure forgiveness of sin, eternal life for all who would believe in His name. And yet, how subtly have so many sought to measure up to the grace of God, dare I say, purchase the grace of God through something so simple and mundane as church attendance. You can check my record, God. I can prove that I'm one of yours. Maybe abstinence from some arbitrary set of sins, maybe through service and to a ministry or through the offering of tithes to a church. We believe in some way that ingratiates us to the grace of God that we're really purchasing with our obediences. Just ask you, just for a moment, ask the question, what have you offered to God for the power of salvation? Sit in that for a moment. What is your heart inclined to offer to God for the power of salvation. Friends, the simple answer and the only answer is the refrain that we'll sing in just a little while. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ alone has paid the price. Christ alone is sufficient. Peter understands when he tells Simon this very reality. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? Are you kidding me? That's why the Bible calls it grace. It can't be purchased. The gospel is not only the power of God for salvation for all who believe, and it is the power of God for salvation. But that's not all. The gospel, insofar as it is grace, is the love of God lavished upon all who would receive it. I feel like I need to sit there for just a second. We talk a lot about the power of God and salvation in this church. We talk about the lofty doctrines of grace, that that the Lord is sufficient, that the Lord is able, that the Lord has performed and worked a completed gospel, that the Holy Spirit is powerful and able to transform a dead heart into a living heart. But if it is the doctrines of grace, 
Isn't it more than power? Isn't it love? Isn't it love lavished on a heart like mine? It's so different. It calls for a different reaction when you see that, oh, it's power. It's power lavished on the undeserving. It creates someone different than what Simon has seen. The gospel, insofar as its grace is also love, creates a humility and a worship and a joy in a city. Listen to Peter's rebuke. Peter's rebuke couldn't be more stern, couldn't be more severe. He offers up what is nothing less than a curse. Simon's cursed before. He's cursed for foolish reasons, reasons that are themselves deserving of rebuke, Peter has. This time, Peter's rebuke and curse is the most accurate statement that he could say. Simon, you are perishing along with your silver. Your silver be damned along with your soul. Neither silver nor a prideful heart of unbelief can ever measure up to the greatness of our God. Notice what, what Peter says is the problem with Simon. Simon's heart. Simon's heart. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this, for your heart is not right before God. You see, Simon had believed with his mouth. Who here has believed, or who has confessed belief with your mouth? Who here has acted like Simon in belief? That you've walked a walk that looks like that of a disciple. You've followed after someone like Philip. But eventually, Simon's heart was found out. Your heart is not right before God, Peter says. And then he continues in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of your this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. I love the Lord and His gospel. There's nothing on the planet like it. The gospel is able to look reality in the face, stand up straight and tell us that in our pride and sin and unbelief, our soul is damned. Harsh. True. Reality. And then immediately, unflinchingly hold out a call to repentance and faith. You are condemned in your sin. Repent and believe. Simon saw, Peter saw that Simon was in the gall of bitterness, it says, in the bond of iniquity. Friends, there is so much more reflection and reading that we could do on that, but it's thick. Whatever in the world gall of bitterness, bond of iniquity means, it has something to do with the heart. Something far more deceptive than any of Simon's little tricks. His heart was deceived and in bondage. What Peter knew was that it was not possible for Simon to be forgiven. He knew that apart from a miraculous and transforming power of the very spirit that Simon had blasphemously undervalued, Simon was lost. But Peter knows that about every single person who had heard the gospel. And he'd seen that Holy Spirit transform heart after heart after heart, including his own. 
And so he called him to repent and believe that if possible, Lord, that you would work in this man. Repentance and faith are there for you, Simon. This is the job of anyone who proclaims the gospel. We are to declare the bad news. We can't skip it. It's the beauty and the power of the gospel that we can be honest and say, left to our own pride and sin, we are rightfully condemned. If the Lord is a king, he doesn't let rebels run loose in his kingdom. That would be a bad and negligent king and a poor father. He's right and he's good to condemn sin and sinners. And then we must declare the hope of the good news, or else it's not gospel, right? That in Jesus there is forgiveness of sin, and it's in Him alone, not through any performance, not through any mere penance that we might try to purchase this grace, this absolution, this freedom from the King. And we are to call the one who hears the bad news and the good news to faith. Repent of your sin and believe the good news of the gospel. Repent and believe. Let's consider for just a moment Simon's unbelief. I find Simon's response quite consistent with everything that we know of Simon. It's almost like we could write the rest of the story. We know that he doesn't like being small, right? Simon's always gathering a people to himself, gathering a name for himself, calling himself somebody who is great. He doesn't like being small. So surely he's uncomfortable with the condemnation that Peter has revealed to him. We know that Simon has a very small view of God. Where he used to manipulate crowds with his supposed magic, he now thinks that these great men, Peter and John, can manipulate God on his behalf. Simon's still a magician. He thinks the world is still just mere physics, mere movement of powerful forces, not a king and his creation. By now we know that Simon lacks saving faith. We can consider Simon and his fruits. Simon believes in the power of God. He does. Simon believes what the demons believe about God. He is a powerful God. When, when Jesus comes into the town, the demons start stuttering and making requests to the great power who is God. We've seen the power of God on display, and Simon saw it, and he'd be a fool not to be impressed. He was amazed. But saving faith doesn't just declare that God is impressive or powerful. Saving faith believes that God is beautiful, that He's excellent, that He alone is glorious, that because of His steadfast love alone, He's brought forgiveness and sin to undeserving souls. So the immediate, listen, the immediate fruit of faith is to be humbled before God. The first fruit of faith is to be poor in spirit. From that place of humility, we, for the first time in our lives, no longer desire our own glory, no longer desire our own greatness, but confess and long for the glory of God alone. That is saving faith. Love the way that R.C. Sproul has put it. He says, if you love Jesus, if you love Jesus at all, the Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures, as he is the King and Savior, if you love Jesus at all, that's evidence of grace. 
you value him? Is he worthy? The one of supreme worth? That's saving faith. It's something far different from the sort of profession that Simon has made. And sadly, far short of the sort of profession that is often called for in gatherings like this. And possibly, far short of a confession that you yourself have made. Is Jesus of any value to you? Friends, there are two warnings in this passage that we'll close with. There is a warning for those who minister the gospel in these verses. You see Simon's heart. You see the root of his idolatry. It's a, we use that word around Cross Point Coast for the, the root idols, power, approval, comfort, and control. It might look like Simon has a power idolatry. But I think if we look at the passage and the number of times the word great is used and the fact that Simon uses that word of himself, we see that he's actually an approval junkie. He's not a power junkie. Power is simply a, a means to a great end of his own greatness. He craves the attention of the people. And I know how much that resonates with so many of us. Approval junkies. Listen, the only way out of the pit of vanity is to catch a glimpse not only of the infinite power of God, but also the infinite worth of God. So I want to call us, I want to call the partners of the gospel here at Cross Point Coast to confess the infinite value and supreme worth of Jesus Christ, to know God, to be filled with the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit. Is that what you long for? Or do you long for great demonstrations of the Holy Spirit in your life? Friends, there is no greater demonstration of the Holy Spirit than to humble a prideful heart. Friends, that's to take a dead heart and make it alive. That's why often, almost every time we gather, we pray for miracle. God, work miracle among dead and wandering hearts as we gather. To behold the face of Jesus Christ is that our treasure and pursuit. All ministry, all ministry will be lopsided and ultimately only to serve to our condemnation if our hearts are not leveraged to the infinite worth of Christ. If our hearts aren't leveraged for the infinite worth of Christ, but rather seeking only the fleeting approval of man, do you see the value where the value is place? It's a warning to all who would proclaim the gospel, something that all of us have been called to. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, your approval is found in grace. Is there any more treasured words in the universe than that Jesus himself in Hebrews is not ashamed to call you brothers? That's all the approval I need. I get to be a brother, a sibling, a co-heir with Christ, the king of creation. Friends, it would be a sweet thing. It would be a sweet thing to hear the words of our Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we have a better treasure. What about when the Father says, come to me, my 
It's beautiful that Jesus says when the servants go around and they're serving and they're serving and they're serving and they're still unworthy servants. (laughs) I don't know that I get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. In part, I know me a little bit too much. And it seems like those words ought to be directed to Christ. And the only way I would ever hear them is if I am in him. But everyone who is in Christ will hear Come to me, child. Secondly, there is a warning for all who would profess faith in Jesus Christ. If you have professed Jesus Christ, is Jesus a means to an end for you? Oh, it's so subtle. Is he a means to an end? Is he a means by which you get your kids to obey? It's a beautiful thing that so very often that around the season of beginning to have children, mothers and fathers think, my kids need what I had when I was a kid that my parents or my grandparents gave to me. And so I'm going to bring them here. And I saw the impact that it had on my obedience. And so hopefully I can get a good family out of this Jesus thing. Is the church a means and a place to go and show off your skills in the name of using your gifts? If He is, if Jesus is is just a means for using your gifts, if He's just a get-out-of-jail-free card, I just want to speak honestly for a moment to your heart. You don't want Jesus. You don't want Him. You don't want heaven. You see, heaven is all about the glory of God. There is no glory for you there apart from reveling in the glory of God. If you don't want Jesus, you don't want to go to heaven. It's all about Him there. All will pale in the light of His glory. But the call, the call for anyone who has the twinge of conviction in that question, don't run and hide. I want to call you to look more intently to the light of His glory, to look to the power of the gospel, to consider that in the gospel alone there's hope to be humbled, that if you see Him for who He is in His holiness, His righteousness, and His love and compassion, you'll be humbled. That You'll see your pride. You'll see your sin. You'll see His glory and you'll see His grace. And by grace, you would repent. You would believe. And this is a call to profession. It's not just a call, though, to profession that Jesus is Savior. It's not just a call to a profession that Jesus is Lord. It is a call to profess that Jesus is treasure. Heavenly Father, this would only happen if you would inhabit these words. Or words tossed around a school cafeteria. They're just words. Even words printed on a page that we mark on the front with Holy Bible, is, they're just words unless you have sent them. Unless you would inhabit them. Unless you would convict hearts who receive them. If you would clear away the weeds that so often choke them out. Lord, if you would prepare soil by your Spirit, it would be miracle if there was any fruitfulness in our midst. But this is what you do. You did it in Jerusalem. You did it in Samaria, as we'll see. You did it to the ends of the earth. Would you do it here? 
here on this corner, this elementary school in Vieira, would you grant faith to treasure you? Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. You are our one hope. You are our glorious treasure. I pray that you would inhabit also our praise, that the hearts that have been lifted up to see your value, not only your power, but your value this morning would sing, that we would worship, that the greatest implication of the gospel actually isn't witness. It's worship. That you would make worship out of all who gather this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of Jesus, in the infinite, valuable treasure who is Jesus. Amen.